Please turn with me in your pew Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, the 11th chapter. Mark 11, we can begin reading at verse 12 there. As you turn there, just say a few words uh, about this morning's sermon and future sermons. I'm, I'm starting this morning a, a new series of sermons on uh, what have been called the hard sayings of Jesus. Many people who heard Jesus' teaching uh, during His public ministry found some of His words hard, and they told Jesus so. In fact, even His disciples uh, in John 6, for example, after they heard Him teach that they must uh, eat His flesh and drink His blood if they're going to have a part in the kingdom of heaven, many of them said, uh, admitted to, to one another, this is a hard saying, and uh, who can listen to it? Who can understand it? In fact, we read a couple of verses later in John 6 that many of His disciples, after hearing Jesus say that, turned back and no longer followed Him. They couldn't handle the difficulty of His words. But the truth is that many of us today, as we read through the gospel records for ourselves, we find some of Jesus' sayings, some of His words, hard, though we might be reluctant to admit it. Well, this morning, I'm going to admit it to you. I find some of Jesus' teachings hard to understand, at least at, at first glance. Uh, Amanda and I have been reading through the Bible uh, every evening out loud. We're trying to make it our way through the Bible this year. And we just finished reading the Gospel of Matthew. Now we are in the Gospel of Mark. And there have been a couple times after finishing a section of Jesus' words that Amanda has looked at me with an inquisitive look on her face and said, what does that mean? And I said, more times I'd like to admit, I don't know what that means. I haven't studied this passage lately. I'm going to have to do a little digging on this. I'm not quite sure what that means. Some of Jesus' sayings might be called hard for maybe a couple reasons. They are hard to understand. They require some, some deeper thinking on our part. They require us to dig into the rest of Scripture to understand Jesus' sayings. I think the main reason some of Jesus' sayings are hard is that they're hard to accept. They're hard to accept. They make, leave us feeling uncomfortable, convicted in our souls, and sometimes they challenge our sensibilities. Well, these hard sayings of Jesus remind us that Jesus Christ Himself, as well as His teaching about the kingdom of heaven, cannot be watered down. They can't be tamed by our limited and sinful expectations for the Christian life. Jesus' words may occasionally be difficult, they may be convicting, they may even offend us from time to time. But ultimately, we must confess like Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of everlasting life. Well, this morning, we're going to be looking at one of those difficult or hard sayings of Jesus. It's found here in Mark 11. It's also found in a more abbreviated form in Matthew 21. And it's the event where Jesus curses a fig tree. This could be called a parable. Now, it's not your typical parable. Boys and girls, you know that Jesus liked to teach using parables. He taught in many types of parables. He would tell earthly stories, familiar stories from everyday life, but a story that had a profound spiritual meaning underlying it. Well, this morning's parable is not so much a spoken or taught parable as it is an acted parable. 
It's, and it's there for anyone who has the eyes to see and the ears to hear, those who would follow Jesus Christ. We're going to see that in cursing the fig tree, Jesus was exposing uh, the empty religion of those in Israel who believed they could please God externally while not having genuine faith or simply going through the motions. And so Jesus calls all of His disciples to repent of hypocrisy and to put their faith squarely in God who's good enough, who's powerful enough to forgive us all of our sins and to cause us to bear new life, a new fruit, the fruit of life. So let's turn to Mark chapter 11 here, beginning at verse 12. Jesus has just rode into Jerusalem to the cries of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He has peeked his head into the temple briefly to see what's going on there, and now he and his disciples are walking around the vicinity of Bethany. We read in verse 12, on the following day when they came from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city." As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. We're going to end the reading of God's Word here in Mark, but please keep your Bibles open because we are going to look at another passage or two this morning. We're going to consider together the meaning of this parable, the target of this parable, and then finally the call of Jesus' parable. Well, this event in Jesus' ministry has been identified as one of the difficult or hard sayings of Jesus. Why is it so hard? I think the reason this has been identified as a hard moment in Jesus' ministry is that we find Jesus here acting in a somewhat uncharacteristic way. He's not acting the way we're used to seeing him or reading about him acting. We're used to reading on the pages of the New Testament about humble Jesus, meek and mild, gentle, lowly in spirit. But here our Lord Jesus seems to be acting a rather rash, impetuous, irritable sort of way. 
We read that Jesus and His disciples are, are traveling around the vicinity of Bethany and Jerusalem. It's, it's almost Passover, and Jesus has already entered Jerusalem on a donkey to the, to the cries of the crowd. Uh, he scouted out the temple, and now they're walking around Bethany, and, and Jesus' stomach begins to grumble. He is, after all, human. He becomes hungry. And off in the distance, he sees a fig tree. It's, it's in leaf. It's springtime. It's time for the leaves to start coming. And he goes to the tree seeking something to eat, but he finds nothing. And immediately, without any explanation, seemingly without any reason, he curses the tree and declares, may no one ever eat from you again. And they move on. We read this short account, and we, and we wonder, what is going on here? Jesus' actions seem so harsh, so, so arbitrary, so, so unnecessary, especially since Mark tells us it wasn't even the season for figs. We read this, and we feel rather put off with Jesus, and we feel rather sorry for the tree. Poor tree. After all, it couldn't help it. It wasn't even its season to produce figs. It's the kind of behavior we would expect of ourselves. Uh, when, when we have the midnight munchies and we get up in the middle of the night to find something in the fridge, but there's nothing there that we're looking for, and we slam the fridge door and mutter something under our breath about there never being any good food in the house. It's the kind of reaction that, that we as sinful human beings might give, but we wouldn't expect it of Jesus. Well, it's at this moment we have to pause and say, perhaps there's something deeper going on here before we jump to any conclusions, because we, we know that we could never ascribe a sort of sinful impatience to Jesus. He's the perfect, righteous, spotless Son of God and Son of Man. There's something more profound going on here that requires us to ask some good questions about this passage, to dig deeper into it, to grasp the meaning of Jesus' actions. We need to notice a detail, first of all, and that is this. The text does not tell us that Jesus was seeking ripe figs on the tree. It simply says He was looking for something to eat. And it's worthy to look into what fig trees were like, still today, but in ancient Israel. As I said, this was the time of Passover. This was early spring, and fig trees on the Mount of Olives at this time of the year, are in season or in leaf, I should say. And while the ripe figs have not yet appeared, there is a, a small green knobby-like thing that comes up on the tree along with those early leaves. It's a, it's a, it's a bitter thing to eat, but still edible. And in fact, uh, those passing by during this time of season, would often, if they needed a quick snack, pluck off these green knobby fruits and eat them. But if those green knobs, which are sort of a forerunner to the ripe figs that will come later, if they're not there when the early leaves appear, then that's a sign to the growers that that tree is going to be bad. It's going to be a fruitless tree. Despite looking very good from a distance, being in leaf, close inspection of that tree revealed that it's in fact a worthless tree, unproductive, not likely to produce fruit even later in the season. You see, far from being unreasonable, 
Jesus, the creator of all things, had every right to expect something to eat from this tree. He had every right to expect signs of life from a tree that had been watered and tended by his heavenly Father. Jesus came to what was his own, and his own creation would not feed him. And so Jesus curses a tree that is really already cursed because of its barrenness. Outwardly, it looked good, it looked convincing, looked like a healthy tree, but further examination showed it was internally fruitless and soon to die. The cursing of the fig tree was an event ordained by Jesus to teach a profound spiritual lesson. Jesus' hunger, his encounter with this fruitless tree provided the context for a prophetic symbolic act that had spiritual significance for the people of Israel. They were the target of this acted parable, the covenant people of God. And we're reminded that all throughout the Bible, the fig tree was used as a, as a popular image for God's establishment and and growth of his people Israel. The fig tree, the vineyard, was often a picture of God's gracious covenant relationship with his people Israel. In Isaiah 5 in particular, God describes Israel as his vineyard, which he gave every opportunity to grow and to flourish, to know him and to mature under his word. God planted the people of Israel in the promised land, a fruitful covenant environment. He drove out all of her enemies before her. He gave her his law, his instructions to guide her in wisdom and insight. And and God therefore called Israel to obey him, to yield fruit, healthy grapes, healthy figs. But Isaiah 5, that same chapter in which God calls Israel his vineyard, calls her to yield good fruit, there he rebukes his people because they so often failed to heed his call to obedience, the obedience that went along with her privileged position. God, like the owner of the vineyard, came to his people. He looked for a yield of healthy grapes, but all he found was wild grapes, rebellious grapes. And we're reminded of how often Israel uh, rebelled against the Lord and presumed upon his kindness used the safety of the ceremonies and sacrifices that she was called to offer, used the safety of the temple as a place in which she could harbor all sorts of worldliness and idolatry and and superstitions. On the outside, Israel looked very good. She was outwardly religious. She honored God with her lips. But the people of Israel's hearts were very often far from God. And as a result, Isaiah 5, again, the vineyard of God was laid to waste. The enemy nations were allowed to come in and trample the vineyard, the people of God. And it's, it's valuable to notice the placement of Jesus' cursing of the fig tree here in Mark 11. Jesus is exposing the false religion, the hypocrisy of the people of Israel who honored God with their lips but not with their hearts. Look where this event happens. Jesus has just ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey 
to the cries of Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The people that morning are, are excited because they think that Jesus might perhaps be that son of David, that, that political Messiah come to set them free from the tyranny of the Romans. But they're not ready for him to be the Savior appointed by God to save them from Satan's sin and death. And he comes in to hear cries, Hosanna, Hosanna, from people who just days later will be crying out, crucify him, crucify him, he's not the Savior we want. And then after cursing the fig tree, he goes back to Jerusalem and he drives out the money changers, the robbers, those who are taking advantage of people and using the house of God, the temple, to do it. See, this is strategically, this, this parable here of the cursing of the fig tree is strategically placed here to expose the hypocrisy, the lack of heartfelt faith among the people of Israel. In fact, as Jesus cursed the fig tree, He had in mind what God had said about Israel in the midst of her barrenness, in the midst of her fruitlessness and hypocrisy. I'd like you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 8. I believe Jesus has in mind this particular passage as He curses the fig tree as a lesson for the people of Israel, calling them back from their hypocrisy. Jeremiah chapter 8, I just want to look at a few verses with you this morning. In verse 5, God indicates that His people have turned away from them. They've fallen into perpetual backsliding. Rather than returning to Him, they believe the deceit and the lies of sin. They become so ignorant, so foolish because of their rebellion against His Word that they become less wise than even the animals of God's creation. He says in verse 7, even the stork in the heavens knows her times, and the turtle dove, swallow, and crane keep the time of their coming, but my people know not the rules of the Lord. Even the wise counselors among them have become foolish in their counsel. Verse 9, the wise men shall be put to shame, they shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? Their lack of attentiveness to God's Word has led to all sorts of disobedience in their lives. The second half of verse 10 there, from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. That's the gain, the unjust gain that was going on inside the temple. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of the people lightly. Those in charge of the people of Israel were not really getting to the heart of the problem. They were dealing with the, the outside, the externals, but not the heart. And so, no matter how much they say, there's peace, there's peace, God says, there's no peace. And now finally, verse 13. I believe Jesus has this in mind as He teaches about the people of Israel through the cursed fig tree. God says, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. This parable is much like the parable Jesus tells in Luke 13 in its meaning. Remember Luke 13, the parable of the barren fig tree, a fig tree grown in an area that had every opportunity to grow, been watered, pruned, cared for. But it was time for figs. There was nothing on the tree. And God says... 
It's not worthy of the soil it takes up. Cut it down. God judges trees that fail to bear fruit. The lesson, the target of Jesus' parable reminds us that we all too have been planted in God's covenant vineyard. You and I have been given every opportunity to grow and to flourish, to bear godly fruit in our lives. Think of all the ways God has blessed us as believers. We've been given His Word to instruct us and to guide us. Every week we get to come under the preaching of that Word to instruct us and guide us. We've been given the sacraments to nourish our souls with a visible portrayal of the spiritual realities of salvation. We get to come, we get to gather together as believers, enjoy the warmth of the rich fellowship of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Because of all of that, because of this gracious covenant vineyard that God has planted us in, our God expects the fruit of righteousness in our lives. As a litmus test of our faith, He looks for genuine faith. Jesus says in Matthew 7, how can you tell whether a tree is good? By the fruit that it produces. God intends for there to be genuine repentance and obedience showing up all over our lives as evidence of His work. And so it's important, as Scripture calls us to do so often, to examine our hearts, to do a heart test and ask, am I bearing the fruit of righteousness that is expected, that is necessary, that is inevitable for those who are united to Jesus Christ and possess the kingdom of heaven? Because true repentance represents a change of life through faith that necessarily results in new fruit that is pleasing to God. It's impossible for someone who says, I have new life in Christ, to not bear new spiritual fruit through the power of His Holy Spirit. And so this acted out parable is a strong warning for those who give no genuine evidence of the faith that they profess. It's a sober warning to be thoughtful about our Christian lives, to be attentive to the kind of fruit that we are bearing, whether the the confession of our lips matches the the convictions of our hearts. Because those who give no evidence of fruit growing up in their lives over time prove that they are in fact not good trees and God has every right to remove them from His vineyard. We must ask ourselves, are the fruits of repentance and charity, and love, and forgiveness, and godliness, and gentleness, and peace, and so on and so forth, are these fruits of God's Spirit showing up in my life? And if not, am I a faulty tree? Well, Jesus' parable certainly warned the people of Israel, warns all of His disciples about the swift judgment that exists for unrepentant, fruitless people. But you notice looking back at Mark 11, that Jesus' last words in this episode are not His curse. Because on the way back through Bethany, Jesus and His disciples pass by that tree. And sure enough, just as Jesus said, it's withered away, not just slightly withered. Uh, The leaves aren't just starting to turn brown. It's withered all the way to its roots. Clearly, this was a supernatural act of God. And Peter sees the tree, he remembers what happened just the day before, and he says, Jesus, look what has happened. 
to this fig tree. It's withered all the way to its roots. And we would expect Jesus to respond and say, yes, Peter, this is the only result for those who are not bearing fruit. That's not the first words that come from his mouth. Jesus responds to Peter's exclamation of, of, the, of the tree's destruction, and he says this, verse 22, have faith in God. Have faith in God. What kind of faith? A faith that can take a mountain and throw it into the sea if one believes. Therefore, he says, verse 24, I tell you, whatever you ask, in prayer. Believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. That's the kind of faith Jesus says we ought to have. Now, this passage, you, many of you know, has been profoundly misunderstood and abused by those who think that we can call blessings into our lives. We can claim health and wealth and security just if we believe hard enough and claim something for ourselves. That is not the meaning of this passage. Jesus is summoning his followers to faith, to repentance, to a life consistent with that faith. But notice the kind of faith he is speaking of, faith as a confidence and trust, not in ourselves, but in the saving power and the goodness of God who can accomplish all things, even the repentance and the salvation of the worst of sinners. Jesus says, put your faith in God who has the power and the goodness to save the most hypocritical and unforgiving of Christians, a God who can bestow upon an unfruitful life new fruit by the transforming work of His Spirit. Jesus says, nothing's impossible for God, even taking a barren tree and, and making it fruitful again. So he says, put your trust, put your confidence, put your faith in God alone that you might be spared from the judgment of unbelief and be renewed to new life and fruitfulness to the glory of God. Again, we're reminded of what we read in Jesus' parable from Luke 13, the barren fig tree. The owner of the vineyard there is ready to cut the tree down. It's not producing fruit. It's worthy to be cut down. It, 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 should, be, it should be burned up. But there's a gardener in that vineyard, and he's a gracious gardener and a patient gardener, and he's, he pleads with the owner, give me some time, give me another season, another year, and, and I'm going to make this tree my special project. I'm going to dig around the base of that tree. I'm going to put fertilizer in the tree. I'm going to prune the tree. I'm going to do everything necessary to make this, this barren tree fruitful again. And he's patient to save that tree from ultimate destruction. And that is a beautiful picture of what God does for us in Jesus Christ. According to His mercy and in full accord with His justice and integrity. And we see those two things come together. His integrity and His mercy come together at the cross of Calvary. And we, they come together there in perfect harmony. Because Christ there at the cross met the full measure of, of God's wrath against our sin. Sin that we deserve to pay for and be judged for. And yet the beauty of the cross 
is that at that same moment that Christ was undergoing the wrath of God, as Christ was being slain by God's justice on account of our sin, God also showed the depths of His mercy and His love and His patience towards sinners. He loved us so much that He gave up, He sacrificed His only begotten Son to pay the ultimate price for our redemption from sin, to reconcile, to make us right with Him. On account of the work of Jesus, God is faithful, and He is gracious, and He's patient with us. In His mercy, He has given us a time He's given us this day, this moment, as a period of grace for us to repent and to believe and to bear the fruits of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is the best news you'll ever hear. But don't take it for granted. Don't delay. Don't presume upon God's patience. Don't take God's patience as a license To keep on sinning, now is the time of grace. Today is the day of repentance and for bearing good fruit and keeping with the righteous call of God in Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 2, the patience and the kindness of God are meant to lead us to repentance, not to apathy, not to false security. And so right now, Before it is too late, devote your life obediently to Him. Don't presume upon His grace. Don't take it for granted. Don't think it is is safe to hide behind a Christian facade while harboring all sorts of worldliness in your heart. But treat each day as a day of grace, a day of forgiveness, allowing fresh opportunities for repentance for renewed living as disciples of Jesus Christ, for living out the fruit of genuine repentance. Seek your life in Christ alone as He works in you and through you by His Spirit through the preaching of the Word and remain connected to Jesus Christ. He is your source of strength. He is your source of life. He is your source of good fruit. He's the vine. And only when you remain connected to Him by faith can you have the strength and the power to obey Him. And the promise of Jesus is clear. If you remain in Him, you will bear much fruit. So claim the the promise of His Word, that He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ, a day on which you will be approved filled with the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ to the praise, to the glory of God your Father. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess that some of your words are are difficult to understand. But when we seek your word through the strength of your spirit, we soon discover the profound and necessary spiritual significance, even of Jesus' hardest words. Perhaps they are hard to understand because they are of the utmost importance. We thank You that this morning we have been reminded once again of the fruitful covenant environment that You've planted us in. You have made us Your prized possession, Your vineyard, 
You have given us every opportunity to grow and to flourish and to mature and to be healthy trees. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of Christian worship. We thank you for the blessing of Christian fellowship, for the oversight of your elders, the care of the deacons, and the instruction of our pastors. We thank you for all of these blessings that you've placed around us. And so, Lord, you come to us and you expect to see the fruit of righteousness and repentance. You expect to see the necessary consequence of your saving work and your covenant blessings. We pray, Father, that we would not be found to be faulty trees, that we would not be found like many in Israel to honor you with our lips, be very good at looking like a Christian but having hearts that are far from you. Lord, we repent of our hypocrisy. We repent of our outward show, of our apathy, and our assumptions. We pray that you would bring us to a state of repentance and assurance that having put faith in God, you have done a mighty work, not just to move a mountain, but to remove sin from our record to justify us fully and freely through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so we look to Him, we put our faith in Him for the forgiveness of our sins and the strength to live new lives in all godliness and holiness. Thank you, O Lord, for Your Word. May it transform our lives. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Number 534 in the Trinity Psalter hymnal. 